0: Well, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. How does God work? Have you ever thought that if God were to do a massive miracle, then people would just have to believe? Maybe if he would pour down fire from heaven again. Maybe if he would part the sea and allow those people wanting to to travel uh, from uh, North Africa to Europe instead of being lost at sea and and condemned to, 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 to death in fragile boats and victims of traffickers. If there's a way through the sea, maybe people would believe in God. Maybe if he emptied the hospice and the hospital by curing everyone. Maybe if he would write in the stars in capital letters God is real there's something surprising is there not that there's the lack of spectacular the lack of razzmatazz the lack of fireworks that goes with much of God's work could it be that the sheer ordinariness, the low-key nature, the hiddenness of it throws us. Maybe it throws you. Maybe, Maybe you're not yet a Christian and you think, surely if this whole thing is true, I should expect to see God doing something mighty and majestic today. And you don't really see it. And so it throws you, it confuses you. Maybe it throws you, and you are a Christian. You're looking for God to do bigger things, more things, for it to be more spectacular. If that's the case, this passage is for us. Our series is directing us to consider God's unlikely ways. And we've thought about the unlikely pace of slowness. We've thought about the about the unlikely power of weakness. And we've thought about the unlikely potency of smallness. This morning we come to the unlikely power of God's whisper. And we want to first start off with the, the problem of the believer's discouragement. The problem of the believer's... Discouragement. Here's Elijah. Imagine what it must have been like. The evening before had been spectacular. The people of the nation are gathered round. There are the 450 prophets of Baal. There are the 400 prophets of Asherah. And they are chanting and praying and pleading and screaming and dancing. They are whipping at themselves, they are cutting themselves, crying out for their gods to send fire, and nothing happens. Then Elijah steps up to his altar and increases the tension by ordering that huge jars of water be tipped out over the altar, the wood. And the sacrifice, not once, not twice, but three times. The thing is drenched. Then he prays. A simple prayer. And the heavens open and fire, fire falls. And consumes the meat, the timber, the stones, the water. And there is just a charred stain on the ground where it had all once been. The people respond, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Surely a deal-clencher. Surely the false prophets and the false religion is over. The false prophets are put to death by the people. Here, surely, is a colossal victory for God's prophet. Everyone now surely must believe. Well, one look at chapter 19. Is enough to dispel that idea. In verse 1, King Ahab tells his pagan wife Jezebel what happened, her 850 prophets. And Jezebel's response could really be summed up in one word and the raise of an eyebrow. So? So? She's not concerned? She's not phased? Fire has fallen from heaven. Against all the odds, she's not impressed. And it would seem, too, that the people, although they chanted and cheered, haven't swung in behind Elijah and the true God. Elijah says, only I am left. This this amazing miracle hasn't done the job that perhaps Elijah or we thought it might. Jezebel issues a fatwa, remember the the death sentence issued against Salman Rushdie, a fatwa, which well, she issues one against Elijah. She doesn't concede. She doesn't bow down. She doesn't admit she was wrong. She simply changes gear and accelerates. The terrain is rough. Change down a gear and drive over the speed bumps. But the speed bump is Elijah. And he doesn't hang about. We read he was afraid and ran for his life. Possibly, uh, it might read according to the footnote, he saw and ran for his life. Now I want us to be careful with Elijah because sometimes preachers uh, and writers read into this chapter all of our own weaknesses. Now Elijah is a stunningly great man. One of the greatest men in the Old Testament. He has stood on his own. Amidst 850 prophets of false gods. As they whip themselves and dance with swords and slice themselves. And Elijah stood there in that great contest unfazed and unmoved. And then some preachers would have us believe that Elijah is a coward now who runs away because of Jezebel's threat. Or he's disobedient at this stage. Some see in God's words in verse 9 and verse 13, a rebuke. What are you doing here? See, if you read it with that intonation, with my intention, it sounds different. As if, Thus, you're not meant to be here, Elijah. What are you doing here? Some see him as in a severe depression and he really needs to be told to rest and sleep. And God will take the burden off his shoulders and give some of the task to Elisha. That may be so, but that's not the emphasis of the passage. Some see him locked into a pity party. I am the only one left. That's not to to see the emphasis of the passage we have. What we often see in Scripture, the thing being emphasized by a sandwich. We have got something repeated and something key in the middle. So we've got something here and the same thing here. And then we've got the meat in the middle. And we see that in verse 10 Uh, and then verse 14. There's our pieces of bread of the sandwich, Elijah's complaint. And then in the middle, verse 11 and 12, the real meat. Um, So we're not trying to get inside Elijah's head in a big way. It's not Elijah's the focus. It's God is the focus and God's whisper. But before we, we leave Elijah in a sense... And see God. We want to acknowledge the reality of the problem of the believer being discouraged. And there's a number of things that could make him discouraged. There's the stubbornness of unbelief. They've seen an incredible miracle. And it doesn't change the people. It doesn't change Jezebel. And there's a lesson for us. We might think that if our nation... Or our world saw a stunning miracle. That would be a game changer. But think of the Exodus. The people of Egypt and Pharaoh saw the miracles. Did it change them? Think of the the children of Israel at the Exodus. They came through the Red Sea. And they ate the manna. And did it change them? No. Think of the people who saw Jesus' miracles. Did it change all of them? No. Many, many walked away. Rejecting him. One writer, man, Dale Ralph Davis, says, Jehovah's or the Lord's fire consumed everything except the blindness in Jezebel's mind and the stubbornness of her will. There was a blaze of light. But as John puts it in John 3.19, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There's a stubbornness. There's a stubbornness in our world too. And a miracle or a series of miracles isn't going to overcome it. Because people love their sin and their rebellion and don't want God as their king. Another thing that seems to be discouraging um, Elijah, just reading his words, is there's a sense of no progress. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. By ancestors, I... Take him to mean the prophets that have gone before him. And they, they were put to death too. And Israel hadn't changed. And here it would seem that Elijah saying there has been no progress at all with these people. They're going from bad to worse. And that's discouraging. And then he's burdened at the wickedness of the people. This thing that he says twice, verse 10 and verse 14. Lord I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. That's a very specific set of complaints. They've rejected God's covenant. They aren't interested in God's relationship with them. It's as if they've torn up the wedding certificate and flung it down. It's as if they've taken off the wedding ring and flung it in the face of God. They've rejected not simply relationship with God, they've rejected forgiveness from God. They've broken down his altars. We don't care about your teaching about sin and forgiveness. We don't need it. We'll do what we want. We don't need altars. We don't need forgiveness. That's what they're saying. And they've rejected God's message. They don't want to hear from God. They've killed the prophets. They're not interested in hearing what God has to say. A bit like they told Isaiah. They told Isaiah, didn't they? Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. These people claim to be God's people, but their hearts are far from him. And Elijah is burdened and he's right to be burdened. He looks at his nation and it is wicked to the core. And it would seem that he has come to Horeb. Horeb is a mountain range, more properly speaking, uh, and it's where Mount Sinai is. Uh, and Mount Sinai is where God um, established, it's where he gave the Ten Commandments and it's where he established the covenant with his people, in a sense. It's the wedding venue. That's where the covenant was uh, inaugurated uh, or signed and sealed, so to speak. And Moses, or not Moses, Elijah is back at the wedding venue saying to God, these people have flung this relationship in your face. He's here to ask God to deal with the wickedness of the people. He says, I've preached. The preachers before me have preached. And the people are determined to disobey. Romans 11 verse 2 says that Elijah appealed to God against Israel. He's saying, God, you said when your people would break the covenant, you would bring judgment on them. We've preached mercy. We've warned them they're not listening. Will you deal with them? He's discouraged and burdened by sin. And then there's a sense of isolation. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And I don't think this is a pity party. This may just be the blunt facts. After his bravery in Mount Carmel, I'm not sure that he's now quaking in his boots at Jezebel's threats. But he may be fearful of how it would look. How it would look for God's cause If Jezebel gets her hands on Elijah, it would look like a reversal of the triumph of chapter 18 and God would be dishonored. And he feels isolated and alone. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the only believer in an entire nation? It's hard enough being the only one in your school or college or workplace. And so Elijah is burdened and discouraged. Discouraged at the lack of impact That even the big miracles have made discouraged at the hostility towards God and God's ways and God's salvation. I think that's helpful for us. We live in a world where people aren't interested in relationship with God. Who don't think they need forgiveness from God. And who don't want to hear anything from God. They say, keep your religion to yourself. Don't keep it in the public sphere. Make it private. It's fine in private. But don't impose it on anybody else. And we have had the gospel in Ireland for 1,600 years. And there's lack of progress. And we can feel small. And we could feel discouraged. And we might think if God would just show up and do something spectacular, that would do the job. But that's not the answer. And we need to see what Elijah had to see. And that brings us secondly to the surprise of God's whisper. The surprise of God's whisper. God deals gently with Elijah. He sends an angel to feed him. And it would seem the angel directs him to go to Mount and to Mount Sinai. And God cares for this discouraged man. And he speaks to him to show him something that will be of immense help. We read in verse 11. The Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Now, we need to get into our minds the back story here. What had happened on this mountain before. In Exodus 19 we read, Mount Sinai, remember it's the same. Horeb is the mountain range, Sinai is the mountain. Where the Ten Commandments were given, where the covenant was made. Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verse 18, was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. That was this mountain. God says to Elijah, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For he's about to pass by. It was on this mountain where Moses said, show me your glory. And God took him and hid him in a cave. Elijah's in a cave. It may be the same cave on this mountain. And he passed by and he proclaimed his goodness, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. He had proclaimed his glory and goodness to Moses on this mountain. And so Elijah goes out and sure enough there is a powerful wind that tears the mountain apart and there's rocks hurtling and falling and trees being uprooted. And you can see Elijah standing at the mouth of the cave thinking this is it. A great display of power and might. That's what I need to be strengthened and refreshed. And then we read, But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake. Surely this must be it. The earth is being torn out. It is trembling like it did when God gave the Ten Commandments. The whole mountain range is quaking. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. Oh, this is it. This is it. Because that was how God regularly appeared. He appeared in a burning bush to Moses. He appeared in a pillar of fire to the Israelites. The mountain seemed to be on fire and covered with thick smoke when God gave the Ten Commandments. But the Lord was not in the fire. Can you imagine how perplexed Elijah must have felt? And then as he sheltered in the cave, wondering what on earth is going on, After the fire came a gentle whisper. And Elijah heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And it's such a contrast. And that's the point. There's two things that we see here. First is God's ways aren't always in the spectacular. God's ways aren't always in the spectacular. And the second thing we see is that God's ways are often in the whisper. The hidden, the low key. It's not always the great power displays. They won't do it. In fact, they've never done it, as we've seen. God often works with the whisper, the quiet, the undisturbed. It's not the only way he works, but Elijah is reminded... That there is a work going on that's hard to see, that's hard to hear, that's hard to detect. There's a hiddenness to God's work. As one writer writer puts it, God likes to dress down. He likes to go incognito, hidden, in stealth mode, so to speak. Chad Bird, uh, in his book, Your God is Too Glorious, uh, which is an excellent book with a strange title, but it's getting at this whole idea of God's unlikely ways. He says, The Lord is rummaging around through the loudest costumes in nature's wardrobe, but one by one he leaves them on the clothes hanger. Then he says this, The Lord's clothing doesn't fit him. His favourite shirts and pairs of trousers are three sizes, too small. The flowing wind would have hugged his frame nicely. The earthquake was tailored perfectly to his dimensions. The robe of fire, enough to wrap around his presence. And then he says this, but the voice was all wrong. It was too tight. Too confining. And then this this great line. It was unbecoming for such a towering divinity to squeeze himself into such a tiny space as a whispering voice. But he does. But he does. It was unbecoming for such a towering divinity to squeeze himself into such a tiny space As a whispering voice, so low a voice that you could almost miss it. And that's how he often works. There's not much of a wow factor, is there? That's how he worked in Bethlehem, in the cradle. Isn't it? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, squeezed his towering divinity into such a tiny space as a child, and you go in to that house, and there in that small manger, it's not so much a whisper, is it? But a whimper. You see the unlikely power of God's whisper. We see it in the cross too. Now there's God dressing down for us. Right down To the humiliation of nakedness. His salvation isn't in a whirlwind. His salvation isn't in an earthquake. His salvation isn't in a pillar of fire. But it's in the darkness. In the humiliation. In a voice reduced to a croaking whisper he says to a man on a cross. Today you will be with me in paradise whispered mouth is dry incredible the Jews were looking for a whirlwind Messiah who would bring judgment who would rain down fire on the Romans and they missed the saviour of the world coming in a whisper are you missing him have you missed him for that's often how our god works often at times yes sometimes he does he conf- he confronts us and life crashes in around us at times but often 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 he comes in ways that are ordinary and could be missed a friend speaks to us and we hear their words but behind them there's the whisper of god we're in an ordinary room this morning but God has spoken. Spoken through his word read. He's whispered to us as if sung his praises. He's talking to us through the preaching of his word. It's not spectacular, is it? It looks ordinary. But God's voice is speaking. There are no miracles in display here this morning. But God is at work. Don't miss it. Have you missed him? Are you expecting God to sing and dance for you? That's not what you need. You need him to go meekly to the cross without even a whisper of complaint. If you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, you don't need a God to impress you. You need a God to die for you. You need the cross. You need the, the shameful, ordinary weakness, as it were, Of God on a cross. That's where salvation will be found. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. That's the message for Elijah and for us. And it's not just about starting the Christian life, it's about living the Christian life. It's about living for God in this world. Don't be so busy looking for fireworks that you miss the whisper. I have a minister acquaintance who seems to be quite discouraged that nothing seems to be happening. And I think he's looking for the fire and the earthquake and he's in grave danger of missing what God is doing in the whisper. This is the unlikely pattern of God's work. Are you looking for earthquakes in your family? Don't underestimate the slow, low whisper of God. Are you looking for a powerful storm when you read your Bible? Well, listen for the low whisper, still, small voice. See, when you read your Bible, God has spoken. It doesn't always need to hit you with a, with a bang. It is the Word of God. You read it, God has spoken. It may seem very ordinary words on a page, but He's speaking to us nonetheless. Are you looking for the fire when you come to worship? Well remember God may not be in the fire but speaking in a still small voice. Remember how God said in Zechariah 4 not by might, not by power but by my spirit. My spirit. That word in Hebrew means wind or breath in my whisper. Almost we could say. And thirdly, the power of God's whisper. There's power in it. There's not just a surprise to it, but there's power to it. Elijah goes out of the cave and God asks him the same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah unpacks the same burden. And this time, having shown Elijah that he has two modes of working, Sometimes spectacular, like on Mount Carmel, but often in the whisper, he shows Elijah what he's going to do. And the still, small voice says two things as he recommissions this servant and says to him, Go back. Go back to the things that are discouraging you. Go back to the things that are hard. Go back to that wicked queen. Go back and live for me there because I am at work And the quiet whisper we see directs history. The quiet whisper directs history. That still small voice is all it takes. The Lord says, we read in verse 15. When, go back and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king of Aram. And anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint uh, Elisha son of Shaphat that to say, succeed you as prophet. And then he says what will happen. That Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. These are kings, would-be kings that God is speaking about. And Elijah is to go and anoint them as kings over their two respective countries. One is the very nation where the psychotic Jezebel is queen. And with a word. Still, small word. God ends the dynasty of Ahab. That great, powerful dynasty finished. Jezebel, with all her rebellion, it's over. She can issue her death decrees all she likes, but God has spoken. God has determined who will rule. It will take time, it will not be until 2 Kings 9 and 10. That Jezebel finally meets your demise, but judgment has been declared in a still small voice. Do you need reminded of the power of God's quiet whisper that directs history? God has spoken. Wickedness will be judged. Christ will reign. Yes, there will be fireworks, and the earth will tremble, but on that day it'll be too late to repent. God has determined and decreed history already by that still small voice. He's told us that Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He has told us that his king reigns. Do you need reminded that nothing is too hard for the Lord? That he just has to whisper? Not even bark an order. Just speak the word. That's what he does as we witness As we speak, as we preach, he's speaking his word. And then the second thing we see here in the power of the whisper is the quiet whisper builds the church. Elisha is going to be the successor. Elijah said, I'm the last man standing. God says, no, I have somebody else. It will not finish with you, Elijah. I will see that my church keeps going. And then he says, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. 7,000 in all Israel. Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, there will be 7,000. It's likely when he says, I have reserved that these people may not be there yet. But that God will have 7,000 out of this group of people. It's the Old Testament equivalent Dale Ralph Davis says of Jesus' statement I will build my church. God says you might be the last man but there's Elisha and he's going to take on and he says there will be 7,000. Here's the steely determination of God I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And there it is in a whisper. God has spoken. Jezebel can Do all she wants to try and stamp out the worship of God, but she will be stamped out and the people of God will multiply. And it's the pattern we see all over the world. China, North Korea, Eastern Europe, Russia. The quiet whisper of God has prevailed. I will build my church. And so as we finish, if you haven't yet put your trust in the God who's speaking to you this morning, You need to do that. It may not seem spectacular, but you need to listen to the quiet voice before the spectacular comes, for then it will be too late. If you have put your trust in him, then live with confidence in the word of God and not in the displays of power. The word is the power. And Jesus has said it will work like yeast, slowly, you saw last week, but powerfully. So live with confidence in the promises of God. Don't be so focused on the spectacular that we dishonor what God is doing in the whisper. Do look for his hidden, low-key ways and have confidence that he's working even when everything would seem to say to us we should be discouraged. Amen.